wanna say thanks so much for being here. I, I get the privilege of serving our students here and it is a great, great privilege. So thanks for, for allowing and granting me that the great role in my life. I really appreciate you all. Well, a couple weeks ago, we began a series titled Homeward, which was a, a series where we began the conversation, how do we orient our lives? And as we dove into this ser series on orienting our lives, we, we understood that God gave us this tool, this term that we call prayer, uh, as the means by which we do orient our lives. And so Danny kicked off the series a few weeks ago talking about in all circumstances how God invites us and even commands us to pray as a means by which no matter what we're going through, we can orient our lives. And then we had Lindsay come in and share the following week on the model that Jesus gave us to pray. And then last week, Danny uh, discussed the fact that God's posture towards us when we pray is that of grace and mercy. And so today I get to continue the series and I'm really excited. But one of the questions that kind of floated to the top as we began to, to discuss this idea of prayer uh, is this kind of logical puzzle. And, and follow me if you will, indulge me. Uh, we acknowledge that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, that he is totally in control and that even before time began, he totally laid out every single one of our lives, everything that will happen. And it's a term theologically that we call sovereignty, that God is completely sovereign over everything that has happened or will ever happen in this universe. And so the logical question that comes out of that is, do my prayers change anything? When I ask God for something and God says, and, and, and God's gonna do it anyways, regardless of anything I do, God is completely sovereign and he's completely in control. Do my prayers really impact anything? What's the point? What's the point of asking if God's gonna do it anyways? And this kind of question first kind of arose in my mind a little uh, over 10, 15 years ago. Uh, uh, rewind with me a little bit. I was a freshman in college and I had just moved to the Portland area. I'd, I'd been to Portland one time, which was really to just visit the college campus. And then I, I came and started going to school here. And I did not know my right hand from my left and I didn't know a soul. And early on in the fall semester, uh, they have a little thing that most students are really excited about called fall or mid-semester break, right? Which is a break in the middle of the semester where you get five days off to not do class or anything. And 99% and of the students go home during mid-semester break. I, however, did not have a car did not know anybody and I had no means by which I could go home. And the one thing I did not know was that for the next five days during that mid-semester break, all the food and dining services on campus would be closed. <laughs> and that wouldn't have been a problem except that I had negative $158 in my checking account. <laughs> and I just want you to, to kind of sit in the mind of 18-year-old Joe and his naivete as I just sat there, I was like, what am I gonna eat for the next five days? And by the way, this is a question a lot of people ask for most of their lives. So I'm, I'm not so like above it that I don't think that, you know, this is a reality for a lot of people. But for me in that moment, I was petrified. And I was asking questions like, God, what are you doing? I, I moved all the way out here because I thought you were calling me here and here I am and I'm not gonna eat for the next five days and I'm scared and I don't know what to do and I don't know who to call. 
And so I remember I was going into the dining room that Thursday night before, for the next five days, all the food was gonna be gone. And I, I picked up a to-go box and the to-go box they handed me was like one of those like Chinese food to-go boxes that are like pretty tiny and they fold. And, and I got that and I was like, okay, I gotta make five days worth of meals last out of this. <laughs> And so in my head, I was like, I'm just gonna pick everything that's really calorically dense. So a scooping vanilla ice cream, along with some peanut butter and sprinkling some cheese on top. And I looked at it and even at that time, I got nauseous. <laughs> but I was like, I, I gotta make this last five days, what's in this little to-go cup. And as I was going through the checkout in the dining room, I was scanning my ID card. I just remember saying this prayer in the back of my head. I was like, God, I'm really scared. Will you provide for me, please? And I walk out of the exit and I'm circling around the building of the dining room and, and I come across the, the doors for the delivery bay, which were wide open, and uh, all of the, the kitchen workers were, were dumping food into the dumpster. Now, most of it was like old lettuce that had like wilted and, and a lot of it was food that was definitely, had definitely gone bad. But in that time, as I was like walking and it was probably about a hundred, like, maybe 75 yards between me and that dumpster. I did not go dive in the dumpster, by the way. <laughs> but as I was walking to that, as I was walking towards them, I saw them leaving the kitchen with a sheet of Costco cake. I don't know, have any of you ever had this Costco cake before? Um, you know, where it's got like a half an inch of frosting on the top of the cake bread and you eat it and it like spikes your blood sugar and then you feel sick for like three days? Have, have you had this? I see them walking out with this Costco sheet cake that has like two thirds left on it. And they're getting ready to throw it in the dumpster. And I arrive just at the right moment to say, hey, are you gonna throw that away? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, can I have it? And there are a couple other college students and they're like, sure, I mean, we can't keep it. We have to throw it away because it's not gonna last for five days. So here you go. And I got this Costco sheet cake and I go back to my dorm room. I'm trying to shove it in a mini fridge and it's not fitting. So I just set it on my desk. And for the next five days, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, I ate Costco cake. By the way, I don't think I've eaten Costco cake since then. And I think my stomach still hurts when I see it when I'm walking through Costco. But I look back on that time, by the way, and I know it sounds really stupid. I know it sounds really dumb. But that is a time in my life where I see God really clearly that God would actually provide for me. And I was scared and I didn't know where food was gonna come from and literally kinda out of nowhere, he placed a Costco sheet cake in my hands. And he took care of me. But this question kinda popped in my head at this time, which was really the question we're gonna talk about today. If I had not prayed in the line of that dining room, would that cake still have come out? and they were gonna throw it in the dumpster. Did my prayer really change what God was gonna do? Or was God gonna bring that cake out regardless of if I asked, and therefore, what was the point of me asking? Now, there, there is a spectrum here, and, and I get that there's a variety of people in this room, and we have a variety of beliefs on prayer. And by the way, I know that some of us here aren't even sure if we believe in prayer. And regardless of where you sit in this room today, I just wanna say welcome. I'm so glad you're here and thank you for diving into this conversation with us because you're needed for this conversation. 
But in light of the, the spectrum here, I wanna tell you that there's multiple realities we need to hold in tension. And I'm gonna disappoint you here. I am completely and wholly inadequate to relieve that tension. I am by no means smart enough to be able to unpack this adequately. But what I'll tell you is we're gonna dive into this question and I wanna hold my inadequacy with wide open hands. Because I think in the space of this conversation, God has something for us. So really quick, maybe you're on the side of the spectrum where it's like God is completely sovereign. He's made every decision before time even began and therefore humans can do nothing to impact his will. By the way, the Bible really supports you. Maybe you're on the other side of that spectrum that says, what are you talking about? God has responded to the prayers and actions of his people since the beginning of time. And by the way, the Bible supports you. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, it, how many of you, I don't know how many of us have know the story of Exodus, but in Exodus, Moses is God's person and God used him to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, about 4 million Israelites through the desert. And then God through Moses unveils, hey, if we're gonna exist in relationship, this is kind of some of the rules and the boundaries by which we exist. It's kind of like a define the relationship kind of scenario between Moses, the Israelites and God. And the first thing he says is, don't worship anyone else. And like 10 seconds later in the narrative, the Israelites construct a golden calf and begin worshiping it, which was like a symbol of wealth in Egypt. And God is devastated and heartbroken. And he's like, I'm gonna destroy all of these people. And Moses prays and is like, God, remember your promise. Remember who you are. And this is what Exodus chapter 32, verse 14 says. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. That passage sounds like God changed his mind, right? That Moses prayed and God changed because of that prayer, right? Or maybe you've heard the story of Jonah, right? Jonah and the whale, maybe you've heard the story that God calls Jonah as his prophet to be his, mouth to be his mouthpiece, excuse me, to speak to the nation of, of Assyria, the, the capital city of Nineveh, and to tell them, hey, 40 days and your city will be changed. Uh, we don't know exactly what that means, but, but in light of that, the people interpret it as God's gonna destroy us. And so they begin to repent, they begin to pray, they begin to fast and mourn and weep. And look at what Jonah chapter three says, beginning in verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. Sounds like God changed his mind based on the prayers of people. Okay, not enough evidence for you. Let me give you one more. What about King Hezekiah, right? He was the king of the southern kingdom of Judah after the Israelite civil war. And God comes to him one day through a prophet and says, hey, you're gonna die here soon, so get your affairs in order. And, and Hezekiah, brokenhearted, goes into the temple, weeps, mourns, cries out to God to have mercy on him. And through the prophet Isaiah, God tells Isaiah to say this to Hezekiah in 2 Kings chapter 20, beginning in verse five. Turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord and I will add 15 years to your life. 
It seems to me like in each of these instances, and there's, there's several others. You could talk about Abraham and Sodom and Gomorrah. You could talk about several scenarios where God literally responds and changes what it seems like he's gonna do because of the prayers of, his, of the people. So that seems to be true, but then we read about God's sovereignty and we read passages that seemingly contradict it, like Numbers 23, verse 19. God is not man that he should lie or son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? It seems to say God's not gonna change his mind and everything that he sets out to do, he's gonna do. Or Isaiah chapter 14, right, in verse 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. Or Isaiah chapter 46, verses nine through 10. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and apart from me there is no other. There is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purposes. So we have several passages here that seem to indicate that we can change God's mind based on our prayers. And we have several passages here that seem to indicate that God is completely sovereign and nothing we do can change what he's gonna do. So what is it? What's the point of prayer? And this is where I want to tell us that we have to hold these realities in tension. We have to hold the fact that yes, God is completely sovereign and in control, and yet he seems to respond to the prayers of the people who trust him, and both are true. And there seems to be something in prayer that happens when we pray that seems to change things, but it maybe doesn't change God's will. And to show you what I mean, we're gonna, we're gonna study a passage today. What if I told you there was a person who prayed, who knew the future, who knew that what he was asking was actually not gonna change anything, and he asked anyways. And what if I told you that that person praying was actually God himself, praying to the Father, asking for something to change, knowing that his request would not change anything? And because of that, there seems to be something in praying, regardless of if it changes anything, that's important. That we are still called to ask regardless of what happens on the other end of the request. And to show you what I mean, we're gonna look at Matthew chapter 26. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn there and head to verse 36. And, and while you're turning there, let me just tell you a quick little like, history of how we got to where we are in Matthew chapter 26. But in Matthew 26, Jesus uh, is fully God and fully man. And he has been saying throughout the course of his life about this time that is coming. And that time being that he's gonna bear the evil, the, wrong, the wrongs, the injustice, the sin of humanity in himself on the cross to restore and reconcile humanity back into union with the Father. And Jesus has been saying time and time again, my time has not yet come, my time has not yet come, my time has not yet come, my time has not yet come. And at this point, he's finally said, my time has come. And in 12 hours from Matthew 26, Jesus is gonna go to the cross to fulfill the very time he's been talking about. He's been saying it over and over, this will happen. He knew the plan of the Father all along. And so he's just had the, the Seder meal, according to our Jewish friends, we call it Passover. And now after this, we get to verse 36, where he decides it's very important that he prays. 
And that's where we hop into the story, beginning in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Uh, this is, uh, John will tell us this is the garden of Gethsemane, and Gethsemane just means uh, olive press in, in, in Aramaic. And literally, this was just a garden at the foot of the Mount of Olives. It's about a little over half a mile from the temple. Uh, you theoretically could still go there today. And this was Jesus' favorite prayer spot. And he's coming here to pray knowing what's about to happen. Really quick, can I nerd out with you guys? Is that okay? Uh, if you go to the beginning of the story in Genesis, humanity uh, rebelled against God, broke relationship with God himself in a garden. And we've come full circle in the story where Jesus is gonna restore humanity in a garden to make us right again. And it's a beautiful, uh, it's a beautiful just picture to me of that pattern and the way that God works. But um, Jesus comes to this garden because we will see it in verse 37. And taking with him Peter and two sons, the two sons of Zebedee, that being James and John, he began to be very sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here with me and watch with me. So Jesus is so troubled that Luke tells us in his account that Jesus is so heartbroken and devastated and scared and broken that in his humanity, he is literally sweating blood, which is an actual physiological occurrence that happens when we are in, and when humans are in, in intense stress. Jesus is devastated here. He's scared. And now that the time has come, he does not want to go through with the next 12 hours. And picture this, he's asking the disciples to watch with him. He needs his friends right now. He needs his 11 friends to support him. By the way, there must be something that he's trying to model something about prayer for them as well because he's asking them to watch and sit and pray with him, by the way. And we see in verse 39, notice this request. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I don't know if we realize here the absurdity of what Jesus just did. Jesus just asked for a request from the Father that he knows can't be answered. He knows that asking this won't actually change anything. And he asks it anyways. Isn't that absurd? Isn't it crazy that the God of the universe would pray asking for something he knows is not gonna happen? And so there must be something important about asking, even if it doesn't change the circumstances. There's something that happens when we request something from the Father, even if it doesn't change his will. And something when we're talking about an infinite being who's so far beyond us, who can see every move on the chessboard. There's something about the fact that when we ask him something, something happens in that relationship. And Jesus asks it anyways. And you may be asking like, what's the deal with the cup? What cup is he talking about here? Well, Jesus just wrapped up the, the, the Passover meal. And in the Passover meal, there'd be four symbolic cups that, they would, that were related to each of the promises God gave to the Israelites when they left Egypt. And there was this mysterious fifth cup that sat on the middle of the table that went untouched. 
No one would drink it. This was called the cup of Elijah, and it also became known as the cup of wrath based on what the prophets talked about in the Old Testament. Jesus is taking this cup, and the thought was is that when the person came who could drink that, it would be when God starts fulfilling all of his promises and making all things right again. But that cup also symbolized what it would take, the cost that it would take to make all things right again. And it would symbolize wrath, justice, pain. And so Jesus is looking at this cup and he's saying, I don't want this now. And he's saying this in his humanity and he's sitting in this garden and he's saying, I don't wanna go through with this. I don't want the emotion of this passage to leave us here. I want us to feel it. God himself is scared. (laughs) In his humanity, he's terrified and alone and suffering. And he's saying, I don't want this. Take this from me. I can't go through with this. And he knows that this request won't change anything. And he asks it anyways. Why? He shows us. Going into verse 40, and he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Imagine Jesus being so frustrated, so hurt, so scared that he even needs his 11 best friends to pray with him right now. And it hurts him that he doesn't have that support. Like Jesus throughout most of his life was totally fine praying alone. Right now he needs his friends and they're failing him, which of course they are. They've been going for the last like days, like being hunted and threatened and they're exhausted. But I just want us to feel the humanity of Jesus at this moment. But notice here in verse 42 how his prayer changed. The first time he said, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Take it. I don't want this. Notice in verse 42 what he says. My father, if this cup cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So at this moment, Jesus' prayer is not changing God's will But through prayer, God is, the Father is beginning to change Jesus' heart. He's beginning to grant him peace. He's beginning to give him resolution that he's going to go through with this. And we see again in verse 43, and again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. In verse 44, so leaving them again. Notice here he doesn't wake up his friends this time. Because prayer is the very thing that's granting him peace. Prayer is the very thing that's, that's changing his heart. Prayer is the very thing that's giving him the ability to say, I can endure this. And so he lets them sleep. And he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again as in the second prayer. Again, I don't want us to, to miss the fact here that Jesus is praying a prayer that he knows cannot be answered. And yet notice that through praying, that through asking, the prayer is changing him. 
And notice, hear the resolution in his voice in verse 45. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners to go to the cross, to die, to restore humanity to himself. And I want you to hear the dedication there in his voice. Why would Jesus ask for something that won't change anything? And I think it's because Jesus is representing the fact that there's multiple realities when we pray that are held in tension. And to show you what the realities are, let me give you just two points. The first thing to hold in tension is this, that prayer does move God's heart and prayer changes us. It may not change the will of the Father. He's gonna, he's gonna do what he's promised but it moves his heart and prayer changes us. I don't know how many of you recognize this, but, but you move God's heart. I, uh, I was thinking about this as I think about my relationship with my daughter. I have an 18 month old and um, she's taught me more about God in these past 18 months than I think any other human being ever has. But one thing that hit me recently was when she comes to my wife or me and when she's hungry, she'll say snack or num-nums <laughs> or uh, she'll even say uh, lunch now. Um, she struggles with breakfast and dinner, but she'll come up to us and she'll ask, can I have some food basically? Now to my wife and me, there's never been a point in our, in our lives where we're like, we're not gonna feed her unless she asks. No, our plan all along was to feed her. <laughs> We were gonna give her breakfast, we were gonna give her lunch, we were gonna give her dinner. There's never not been a day in her life where we have not fed her. And she asks anyways. And I can tell you right now that my plan all along was to feed her, but when she asks, it moves my heart to do the very thing I was planning on doing. That when she asks, I want her to know that she could come to me and I love her and I respond to her when she reaches out. I was gonna feed her regardless of if she asked. But man, when she asks, it moves my heart. And I want you to know in here, a lot of us are in this garden moment in our lives, maybe even praying for a long, long time. Maybe even praying for a better diagnosis or to not get those divorce papers or maybe even praying for that job or you're praying that you're a teenager right now and you're praying to, to, that God would restore a relationship that just ended. And you've been praying and praying in this garden, God, take this cup from me. And I want you to hear me on this, that you move God's heart. His heart is for you. And I don't know, it, you might not be like me, but I sit there sometimes and when I think about that, I'm like the fact that the God of the universe, who's over galaxies, who, who, who literally controls oceans with one word, the fact that he would care about the things that I care about, the fact that he would spend even a second of his time being concerned about me and that he, his heart literally is for me, that changes everything. And so the first point I want us to hear is this tension that we hold, which is one, prayer moves God's heart. His heart is for you. And through prayer, it begins to change us that if we pray over and over and over and we keep asking, 
what we start to realize is our prayers change because our hearts begin to change. And the second thing that I want us to hold in tension is that prayer is an invitation to participate in what God's already doing. That when God puts that neighbor on your heart, he's inviting you to participate in what he's gonna do already. That when he puts your kids on your heart or when he puts whatever on your heart and you begin to pray and you begin to ask, you are now joining in on the stream of what he's doing. There's this quote by C.S. Lewis. He, uh, he wrote an essay on this very question. And I just want to read you some of the quote. Uh, he says, for up till now, we have been tackling the whole question in the wrong way and on the wrong level. The very question, does prayer work, puts us in the wrong frame of mind from the outset. This question of does prayer work or does it change God's mind is the wrong question. Petitionary prayer or, or asking for things is nonetheless both allowed and commanded to us. Give us our daily bread, as Jesus said. And Jesus reminds us later on too that literally the, uh, an earthly father who's evil or broken or selfish can give good gifts to their kids. How much more so our father in heaven who's perfect. And so we're invited to ask and ask and ask because he's good. And so why do we pray? C.S. Lewis says this point, God said Paschal, the guy he's quoting, instituted prayer in order to lend his creatures the dignity of causality, that you and I affect things. You and I make an impact in this world. But not only through prayer, whenever we act at all, he lends us this dignity. It is not really stranger nor less strange that my prayer should affect the course of events than that my action should do so. They have not advised or changed God's mind, that is his overall purpose, but that purpose will be realized in different ways according to the actions, including the prayers of his creatures. That your prayers, your asking for things is even a part of his will and plan, and it was a part of his purpose. And so when we pray, we're actually participating in what God's been doing all along. And this last quote that I just want us to have on the screen here is, we are not mere recipients or spectators. We're not on the sidelines here. That the goal of prayer is this. We are either, pri we are either privileged to share in the game or are compelled to collaborate in the work. That when we pray, it's an invitation to participate and we get to be in the game. And that when we pray, I'm so confident we'll go to heaven and someone will run up to us and say, your prayers, God changed things through you. But ultimately, it was God. And so those are the two realities I want to hold in tension. But I also acknowledge here that there are a lot of people who are in that garden right now, and, and those two points don't feel like they mean much. And I just want to tell you, maybe you're asking and you're like, what's the point? Does it even change anything? I want to tell you, keep asking, like the way my daughter Rory asks. Keep asking, because you move God's heart. I move God's heart, that he looks at us small creatures and his heart is for us. 
And so ask and ask and ask and ask because it's not about whether or not it changes things. I'm not trying to minimize that question, but in that, I just want you to know God, God's heart is for you. And something happens in the midst of that conversation when we orient our lives through prayer. There's a song that came out uh, like 17 years ago. Um, a lot of us have heard it if you've been around church for a long time. It's called How He Loves, and it's a pretty song, and, and I used to listen to it and be like, oh, cool, God's love, that's awesome. And then I heard the story of why John Mark McMillan wrote it. And it's actually, this song was birthed out of his conversation with God, where his request didn't seem to change much, but it changed him, and he learned how God's heart was for him. And I just want to take a moment and have us watch this video to see maybe an illustration of what I mean. Take a look. About seven years ago, when I was down in Jacksonville, Florida, I flew down there to work in the studio. And while I was down there, we got a call that several of our friends had been in a, a really bad car accident. And um, later on that night, I found out that uh, one of my best friends, uh, Steve, had died as a result of injuries from that accident. I woke up the next morning and I was uh, just really angry and confused and, and hurt, you know. And I process things through music. You know, that's just how I do um, deal with my issues and so, um, I really needed, I felt that I really needed some sort of, um, I needed to have some sort of conversation with God because I was really, really frustrated. I felt like there were some things I needed to say. And so that's what I would do through the music. And that's really a lot of where the song, How He Loves, came out of was I needed these words. I needed this conversation. I'm really looking forward to playing music tonight. I'm really excited to um, be with all the people who are gonna be there. He is jealous of me. Loves like a hurricane. I am a tree bending beneath the weight of his wind. And the love I'm singing about in that song is really is not a pretty, clean. It's not a Hollywood hot pink love. It's um, it's a kind of love that's willing to love things that are messy and willing to love even the difficult and sort of, um, you know, kind of gross kind of things, you know. Oh, how he loves us so. Oh, how he loves us. How he loves us. That's really the kind of song I wanted to write is through this frustrating period and he could You know, in my anger, in my resentment. And in my frustration, he could still love me through that. You know, and, and in this process of dealing with the, uh, my buddy dying. And um, he could love me through that. And he was okay. He wasn't, you know, offended at the fact that I was angry at God. Just looking at these old uh, lyrics. You know, you think after seven, seven, seven years, 
was still really tough. This song isn't a celebration of weakness and anger. It's a celebration of a God who would want to hang with us through those things, who would want to be a part of our lives through those things. And despite who we are, he would want to be a part of us and be a part of our community and be a part of our family. And that's, that's the kind of love I, I think I'm talking about. I, I hear that story and I'm like, that song was birthed out of a conversation between him and God saying, God, spare my friends' lives. And, and God did it. And out of that messy conversation where he could still ask, he came to this place where he's like this messy, broken, frustrating love, it's still there. And so we're gonna sing that song together right now because I want you to hear that if you're in that garden moment or even if you're not, you can ask, you can ask. And I don't know what will happen but what I know is, is that you move God's heart. He's for you. And my hope is, is that you would feel overwhelmed by his love along with me. So let's sing this song together. No. How he loves us so, oh, how he loves us, how he loves us so. He is jealous for me, loves like a hurricane, I am a tree, bending my knee. The weight of his wind and mercy When all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions Eclipsed by glory And I realize just how beautiful you are And how great your affections for me And oh how he loves us so oh how he loves us how he loves us so Affections are for me 
and oh, how He loves us so. Oh, how He loves us, how He loves us so. Sing it again, and oh, how He loves us so. Oh, how He loves us, how He loves us so.
Jesus loves you.